Amen. Thank you, Steve. Well, it's my pleasure to open the word again for us this morning. And it's a familiar text we're starting with. We call it the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer or Caps Lock. There we are. But again, this is week two of our What's Next Praying Forward series. Praying our way forward. So Steve read Matthew 6. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount. It's just, to me, it's one of the most amazing chunks of Scripture where Jesus basically gives this entire sermon that on one hand is a commentary on the entire Old Testament. It is the foundation of Christian. I mean, it's just, just about everything is answered in there. And in the middle of it, he gives this prayer. When you pray, pray like this. And it's a simple prayer. But again, it's just packed with attitude and, and, and values and, and desires. And Steve read it, so we won't go through it again. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. And that's as far as we're going to get. Today we're going to talk about praying your kingdom come. Why do we pray your kingdom come? How do we pray? Do we mean it? Again, thanks so many of you that have prayed through this week with us in that prayer booklet. And you know what? That's recyclable. You can use it again another week, another two weeks. Every time you add something, you can replace it with something else. I mean, it's, part of the idea is just to make sure that we are all praying together as the church. And not just praying routinely, but praying in anticipation. Praying in recognition that it's God's church. Jesus is doing something. If he's not doing something, I don't want to be here. I don't think you do either. We're, we're not here as a social club, or we're not here to be entertained. We expect God to move. And so we pray, your kingdom come. So we've had surveys, we've talked a lot about church and what is church, and I can hear some of you rolling your eyes. I know. Some of you are thinking, if I have to fill in one more survey, if I have to answer one more question... Let's just stop talking about church and be church. Yes, yeah, yes. When I was doing my teacher training, it was at Lethbridge. And I'd heard before I got there that it was one of the best education programs in the province of Alberta. So that was a good thing. When we got there, they told us it was the best education program in the province of Alberta. So it was good to hear. And almost right away, they started asking us how we would make it better. And they kept asking us that. At the beginning, it made us feel good. Oh, yeah, yeah, here we are, second, third year university students, and these PhDs keep asking us how to make the program better. And then eventually, when those questions would come up, we'd kind of look at each other and say, they have no idea what they're doing. It was kind of discouraging, actually. I want to assure you, <laughs> that's not where we're at. The staff have an idea. They have a vision. They feel God is leading. The board has an idea and a vision. But, but the staff and the board are humble enough to understand what we read in Ephesians chapter 4. This is an amazing verse. For some of us, 
We think the opposite, but let's read through it. Ephesians 4, 11 to the first part of verse 12. He gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, read pastors for that, it's interchangeable, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You get that? To equip us for ministry. Often we think of the, the staff are in ministry. Sometimes you even think that we hire them to do the ministry. That's not their job. This is how God equips the church. He gives us leaders, prophets, pastors, teachers to equip us to be the ministers, to do the work. And so as we continue to talk a bit more about church and the direction of church, the question is, how are you and I involved? How do we feel that God is leading us? Because that's part of what the leaders need to know as they continue to lead the whole body of Christ. And one thing that we recognize, it's talked a lot about now, we're, we're coming into the post-COVID world. And it is a different world. But we also know that God is a redeemer, and when there is some kind of crisis or some kind of pain or some kind of loss, he is always ready to turn it into something better. So we anticipate, we expect, we wait to see what he's going to do now. One of the things that is just common in a lot of Western civilization, at least anyway, is that we recognize that with lockdowns and, and a slower pace, a lot of people are realizing, you know, we were too busy before. We were just filling in gaps that had little value. And there's a desire for people in their own lives, there's a desire for businesses, how they operate, to not be as busy, but to do the right thing in the right way. Do less and do it better. I stole that from Steve. He said that many times. But that's the idea. We don't need to keep being busy. You know, there were, there were times when it seemed like the church was open every night and, and some people had to be there every time. It was like they had special hearing. Every time the church door unlocked, they were there. Let's go do something at church. And it's great to get together. It's great to do stuff. But sometimes, are we too busy? We lose sight of doing what we need to do. And, and, and we do take a look at it, right? I mean, we know what we had in the past. We know that right now we don't have a choir, and we've had wonderful choirs. We don't have a men's quartet and a ladies' trio. We don't have a traditional Sunday school. Haven't done Bethlehem in a while. And it's easy to look at a list of things that we don't do and say, well, wouldn't it be nice if we were doing them again? I don't know. Let's ask God. I don't doubt that God has used those things in the past in great ways. But the question isn't, can we get busy again? The question is, what does God want to do? And if he chooses to lead us to do all of those things again, then praise God, let's see how he's going to do it. But let's not just fill in gaps. Let's follow the Spirit. That's why we need to be praying about these things. That's why we need to know that God is leading us 
in the direction that he wants his church to go because he has a purpose for us. We're not always sure. He is. So we need to be open to him. Now that prayer that Jesus prayed, and again, in the middle of Matthew, it's part of the Sermon on the Mount, it comes up again, a slightly different variation in Luke 11. So let's just look at Luke 11, 1 for a sec. This again is Jesus for the disciples, but it, it comes at us from a different angle here. It says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and he prayed a lot. And when he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And then Jesus prays a very similar prayer to the one in Matthew, a little bit different, but, but the same idea. And what we see here is a typical thing that happened between teachers and students, rabbis and disciples. In fact, the disciple says, John did it, why don't you? And what we find out is that many of the leaders, many of the rabbis at the time, when their students were with them, generally everyone had a bunch of prayers. We know that they prayed the, the, the Shema, the you know, Hero Israel. That was prayed by just about everybody many times a day. And there were some other set prayers that they were just part of their culture. But sometimes the rabbis would teach their own school, their own followers, a specific prayer or a condensed version of that prayer. And, and some scholars tell us that that's what we see here. And in fact, the disciple says, John has taught his disciples the prayer for their group. What's ours? And when Jesus gives them this prayer, it's actually a, a condensed version of a blessing that was said three times a day. Supposedly by every male, but, you know, some of them napped through it. But it's called the 18 prayers, the 18 blessings. And, of course, there's 19 of them, which is another story. But each of them has something specific about who God is and where they're at and what they expect. And two of those prayers in that Amida, the standing prayer, the, the 18, two of them specifically talk about the kingdom. One of them is a prayer that God will restore Jerusalem as the capital. And right after it is a prayer that God would raise up a descendant of David, the Messiah. Now in their context, in their time, those were not glib things to say. They were incredibly powerful things to say. To be living under the dominance of Rome, under the cultural dominance of Greece, in the land that God promised and yet feeling like they're not part of it because they're following other people's rules. The idea that they're going to pray for the kingdom of God to come is subversive. It's dangerous. It's risky. It's powerful. What they're saying is we expect the world to be different. They're not just saying, you know, we hope that poor people are richer and sad people are happier and we hope, you know, things get better for us all in general. They want radical change. They expect their world to change. God, bring your kingdom. God, reestablish your capital. God, send Messiah. And the implication is nothing will be the same. Let your kingdom come. you imagine praying that in the Roman Empire where soldiers are pointing spears at you all day long? It's a powerful prayer. It's a risky prayer. And you don't pray it casually. Your kingdom come. How was Jesus going to do this? 
You know, sometimes we read through Scripture. Some, some of us are great Scripture readers. I know some of you on programs to read through the Bible in a year. It's amazing. Sometimes you can read a verse 50 times, and the 51st time it jumps out at you. This is one of those verses that if it hasn't slapped you in the face yet, spend some time alone with it. I want us to read it together. John 16, verses 5 to 7. This is in the middle of that amazing time when Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room, part of the final meal, part of the final prayers, and he says this. He says, now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. They're going to be, he's talking about leaving. Of course they're going to be sad. Oops, I have my communicator in there. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Do we hear what he's saying? First of all, let's imagine that after the resurrection, Jesus just stayed here didn't ascend to the throne. Maybe Ruby to Camel River. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great if Jesus was sitting in the pew? He, he, it'd be great to have him as a teacher. He could heal. I mean, he could spend part-time in the hospital. The hospital would become redundant. Climb out to Ottawa every now and then, solve all the problems. He could talk to anybody and tell them exactly what's on their head. There's no confusion. He can say, this is how you feel. This is why you feel that way. Do this. What a wonderful counselor. Wouldn't it be great if Jesus was here? Jesus said, it's better if he's not. Jesus said, it's better if I go away so that I can send a spirit. I have to confess that I don't think there's been a day in my life when I have depended more on the spirit of God than I would have on Jesus had been standing beside me. I, I, I can hardly understand this verse. I can hardly grasp it, but I want to know it more. Imagine Jesus living in your house, being part of your family. He says, no. It would be better if I left and the Spirit moved into your house. Have we started to understand what Jesus is talking about? that he'll put his spirit in each one of his people and they will be his church and that will be better than having Jesus physically present on planet earth. Are we ready for him to fulfill that promise? Ephesians 2.19, he talks about us how his spirit is going to work in us, how his spirit is going to make something better on this world than his own physical body here. Ephesians 2, 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
that's you and me, being built together into a dwelling place for God. Because God's going to do stuff. God has a plan. God has an agenda. And he's going to do it through us when we are together. We are being built together by the Spirit to be God's temple. I'm not sure what image you get when you read a verse like that. I mean, in him you're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Which of these two images sort of jumps into mind? There are times when I think a brick wall is nice. We're all basically the same. As long as we all stay basically the same, we'll be safe. And God puts mortar in there, keeping us a distance from each other. You know, yeah, that's good. Let's, let's, let's be the same and be a little bit apart. But I, I don't think that's the image. Because we're all different and God knows it and God celebrates that and he takes those differences and he grinds us together and he, he gets rid of the weak parts and he strengthens the strong parts and he fits us together like the old masons of empires of old, building walls, you, you can't even put a piece of paper between the rocks. And yet no rock is identical to the one beside it. Nothing there but rocks, no mortar, no crazy glue. And the work of the Spirit brings us together like iron sharpens iron with a few sparks and a bit of pain, but we become stronger to withstand the forces of the world and the temptations of the evil one. And we become the body, the building of God. Peter says it a little bit differently. 1 Peter 2.5, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The promise in the book of Exodus was that I will turn the nation into a nation of priests. And Peter is saying that's what we are. We all are those priests, those people that stand between heaven and earth, God and humanity. We are God's bridge. We're God's conduit. We're God's house. And we offer those sacrifices, which include prayer and worship. We worship God on behalf of all creation. We present the needs of all people to God, the nation of priests. Now, again, we've had the week of prayer. Steve preached last week about prayer and the importance of it. So I get the honor to talk about something else, something we don't talk about as much. Let's look at Luke 5, 33. Here's another section where they're sort of talking to Jesus about how he runs his operation, basically. Luke 5, 33. They said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. Now, this is a common observation, complaint about Jesus, you know. I mean, Jesus even said, you, you complained about John because he fasted all the time and he ate very little. And you complained about me because I eat and drink too much. Take your pick. You can't, you can't complain about both. Well, here they're talking about how he's running his Bible school, how he's training his disciples. And they're saying, you, you're not doing what you're supposed to be done. John teaches his disciples to pray, and he teaches them to fast. And the Pharisees teach their disciples to pray, and they teach them to fast. How come you are not teaching them either? And Jesus says, because right now it's a party. 
We're celebrating life. I'm with these people day and night. I'm preparing them to change the world. But don't worry. There will come a day when they will be fasting. And you know, throughout the history of the church, that's been the case. Just as it is throughout the history of Israel, throughout the Old Testament, fasting was just a common, common thing. You can find tons of quotes on fasting, tons of examples of missionaries and pastors and preachers who use fasting as, as a basic, basic part of their spiritual growth. You can also study that it's kind of become uncool in the last century or so in, in some places. One of the most amazing examples is Jesus, after he was baptized and anointed to begin his ministry, and before he actually went out and started preaching, he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. He didn't need to, did he? He, He's the son of God. Couldn't he have just gone straight to work? Yep. But he chose that communion with the Father with his father, that included a fast of 40 days and 40 nights. It's an amazing example. An amazing example. We're going to look at quickly here then at, at fasting and three aspects of fasting that we find presented in Scripture. And the first one is fasting for requests. And I think this is the, uh, uh, the most common understanding of it. When you're praying something and you really want God to know you're praying, well, you fast. It's a, it's a little bit way of twisting God's arm in a sense. And it's not always a bad thing. Here's an example out of Ezra. It's kind of a funny story, actually. Ezra 8, 21, 22. Ezra's telling the story, and it says, Then I proclaimed a fast there to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us, Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. I love this. Think of the story. Here's Ezra. He's got permission to start moving people back to Jerusalem after the exile. And the king says, right, well, I'll send soldiers. I'll protect you. Ezra, in his exuberance, says, we don't need your soldiers. God will protect us. And then he turns around and says, we don't have their soldiers. So he gets all the people to fast and pray for God's protection because he's kind of embarrassed. If somebody gets hurt, it's going to make our God look bad. So it's just this kind of weird twist in poor old Ezra's day. But they're using fasting here as a way of enforcing their prayers for protection. And I think that's often how we would think of fasting. Something really serious you want to pray about, you want to pray through, include fasting. So fasting for requests. We see that in Scripture. Fasting for repentance. Hmm. Joel, chapter 2, 12 and 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. It's interesting in, in Scripture, God often compares a physical practice with a heart issue and rending the garment tearing the garment was often a, a sign of mourning you know when someone dies very common in, in in a lot of cultures tear the garment and god says tear your heart and part of that admission of failure admission of weakness admission of 
sin, part of that repentance is also saying, I'm going to turn away from food and drink for a day or two. Third one we're going to see in the book of Acts is fasting for clarity. And this one's really interesting because this is the church. And it seems like they're fasting here just as a matter of routine. It's not a special program. It's just uh, Acts 13, verse 1. Now, there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers, and it names a bunch of them. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, just seems to be a normal thing. They were worshiping and fasting, like usual. Then the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, it doesn't say they were praying for guidance. It doesn't say they were fasting to wake God up to get the church. It just, that's just what they were doing, praying and fasting, worshiping and fasting. And at that moment, God chose that moment to give them a mission, to give them clarity. And they realized in that moment of praise and fasting, hmm, Barnabas and Saul are going to do a work. Now, for you and I, okay, that's fine. They're missionaries. You know what? This didn't happen a whole lot. This was a weird idea. We're going to send these two guys out to people they don't know to tell them about God. Huh. So the Spirit had to be pretty clear about what he wanted here for them to be able to put it in such simple terms. But it happened while they happened to be worshiping and fasting. Worshiping and fasting. Now, fasting has come up again in our culture, but mostly to do with health. Mostly about resetting your, your metabolism and, 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 and charging your immunity system and all that kind of stuff. You know, so, so people are doing it now as a you know, medical practice sort of thing. Let's not separate the spirit from the body too far. Certainly in the Hebrew scriptures, it wasn't. In fact, we, we, we look at what's going on in the world around us, people know that there's a lot of diseases, heart disease. I mean, the list goes on. You do the reading. That they're starting to connect with things like shame and guilt and unforgiveness. Sometimes we just call it stress. There's a lot of those things that are just so common in our society that now some medical specialists are saying, what's behind it? What did you do? What did someone else do to you? The connection between the physical and the spiritual, it's finally something we can start talking about again. And fasting is part of that. It's a physical practice and it's a spiritual practice. But what is it? Okay, let's talk about fasting a little bit. Let's just be clear what we're talking about. It just means setting something aside, not doing something. And yes, sometimes, again, we might want to use this to sort of twist God's arm, but mostly it's a matter for us to remember who we really are. That we are not this physical body, that we are not our house and our car and our savings plans. We're not our phones we are not the color of our hair and the color of our eyes. Those are all things that we have and we enjoy and we use. But that's not who we are. That's not who we are going to be a thousand years from now. Ten thousand years from now. Our eternal life 
We'll not find importance in those things. And so we practice that now by just letting go of them for a while, by saying, God, I know that's not me. Thank you for those things. I enjoy those things. I can use those things to glory, but that's not who I am. And one of the simple ways is fasting of food. All right, we're going to just, you know, the Pharisees fasted two days a week. Uh, John the Baptist's disciples, I'm not sure. I suspect they did more because of the kind of guy he was, but it's just a part of a routine. And for those two days of the week, we're just saying, look, we decide not to feed the body. As a practice of saying, I know this is not who I am. This is not the most important thing in my life. This is not what really sustains me. And maybe I feel a little bit weak, and maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's good to feel weakness, to be reminded that I am dependent. And so I go without food for 24 hours, 48 hours a week. And I just remind myself of who I am, and I remind God that I know what I'm dependent on. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we fast on food. I'm just not going to eat. I'm going to practice my dependence on God. We can fast on drink. Now, I mean, watch out medically. You know, you need a certain amount of fluids. No Coke for a week. <laughs> I love it. That's why I'm going to set it aside for a week. I'm not going to drink coffee or tea. I, I don't know. Whatever it is you think might become so much of a habit that it becomes dependent and you feel like you need it, just practice not needing it. Practice saying, God, I don't. I enjoy it, but I don't need it. I need to separate myself from it. I need to be who I am, which is not that. Here's one that I think is hard for some of us. Fasting from noise. I like noise. I like to always have music playing or, you know, something going on somewhere. And I love the image of Jesus going out in the wilderness and leaving his phone behind <laughs> and no noise. Turn everything off. Sit by the ocean. Just know that you don't need your brain to be stimulated all the time. Just listen. A big part of praying, by the way, is listening. Just listen. Instead of spending an hour asking God for a bunch of stuff and praying, just spend an hour in silence. Just fast from noise and realize that's not who you are. You, you're not that busy person bouncing off the walls. You're a sparrow in God's hand and just rest. And this is one that some would find difficult. I would find difficult at times. Can we fast from our electronics? Can we consider the possibility that if we turn our phone off for 24 hours, the world will not fall apart? The stars will not fall from the heavens, and all of our friends will not die. Can we practice not needing that? Can we practice not being dependent on that? Can we practice not using that to define our day? Can we fast from that? Can we leave the TV off for 48 hours? And say, that's not who I am. I enjoy it. It helps me. There's good stuff on there. But that's not who I am. Can we fast from those things? 
And the example throughout Scripture and an example in church history is the more that we're willing to do that on a regular basis, the more that we're willing to say, who am I really? Am I the food that I eat, the clothes that I wear, and the stuff that I listen to, or am I a child of God? The more we do that on a routine basis, the more we're open to thinking about what God wants to do in us. The more we're willing to consider that maybe God is also not just interested in how this building looks and the music that we play and the activities that we do. Maybe God is looking for something deeper. It's those times when God can break through. It's those times when God people say, this is who we really are. We are your spiritual house, your spiritual temple, your spiritual body. That's who we are. We do these things. We don't need those things. This is who we are. And the more we focus on who we are, the more we're available for God to move. Because, you know, we're really not interested in making the Baptist church bigger or making the Baptist church more popular. What I think we're all interested in is people whose lives are falling apart and are reaching out and no one's there on the other end. People who don't even know how to reach out, but God wants to reach into them through his body, us. Families that are crumbling, People who financially over the last couple of years have been destroyed and they are thinking, I can't live anymore. That's what God wants to do. To reach those, to feed the hungry, give hope to the hopeless. To call his children back to a living relationship with him where they feel fulfilled just knowing him. And so as we pray and as we fast, we're practicing that in our own lives too. So we pray, your kingdom come. And like the disciples of Jesus and John and the Pharisees, it's a drastic prayer. It's an epic prayer. It's a world-changing prayer. We're saying we want your kingdom to come. Do we have a lot of evidence out there? Well, I see a lot of evidence of things that are not godly in our world. So do we really want to pray your kingdom come? Because it's going to shake things up. It's going to change people's values. Your kingdom come. We're saying to God, I expect the world to change. I expect my world to change. Because there's big problems where you have two kings in one area. Your kingdom come, my kingdom go. That's our commitment. By saying, your kingdom come, we're saying, there goes mine. And yes, right now the world's in a weird place. We're getting used to what life is going to be like after COVID. Lots of questions are being asked. That's a good time to answer them <laughs> when they're being asked. We've got strange wars happening that we can't really understand and the journalists can't really make sense of. What's going on in Europe? Why is that happening? Why, why is that not being stopped? We don't know. There's lots of questions about what people are capable of. And those questions can be answered while they're being asked. Because our God is a redeemer. He takes death and makes life. He takes pain and brings wholeness. He takes loneliness and brings people home.
That's where we're at. He gives hope. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we look at one more verse. Considering the life of Paul, it's really an amazing thing. And this one verse that he penned in his letter to the Galatians, just the worship team, right, both of them. <laughs> All 14, no, come on up, guys. Galatians 2.20, another one of those verses. Paul, this guy who had a lot of potential, he had power, he had wealth, he was connected the right places in society and stuff. He went through a drastic change, and he explained it this way. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is saying, my kingdom is gone. His kingdom come. I'm crucified with Christ. That's not a sacrifice. That's a gift. That's a freedom. I'm no longer bound by the things that bound me down before. Because my life has been given to God. Now it's just God's life in me that matters. I don't live for my legacy, I don't live for all the world says is so important. I now get to live for the truth, for God, for his kingdom. Crucified with Christ is a gift, it's a freedom, it's a joy. So we pray your kingdom come. We want to see the kingdom of God among us, in our city, in our country. He will do the work. It's his kingdom. But he'll do it through us. He'll do it through us. If we let him.